Hello, Maranatha. It is good to be back with you again today. It's a, it's a Friday night here at Exile, and uh, I had been fully intending to record yesterday morning, but um, there is a situation that happened, and I want to share with you about it so that you can be praying with us uh, for the Tate family. There's a family that we have served with for a long time. We served with them together in Ankara. In fact, I introduced them. They got married. I did their wedding in 2016 in the UK. They've been living uh, in Turkey as a family, and they've got three young kids. And yesterday, as um, or two days ago, as they were uh, planning to come and visit us here in North Cyprus, at the airport they learned that they were being deported for reasons of national security. So very similar to our situation, they, um, they were kicked out of Turkey and they can probably never go back. So uh, this was very, as you can imagine, traumatizing kind of experience for the whole family. It has obviously implications for the rest of their lives. So uh, dealing with that, with them, helping them to talk through options and uh, helping them to get settled here in Cyprus for what is going to be a longer visit than they expected. But then also yesterday, their oldest son, Josiah, who is just six, uh, came down with a respiratory infection. So we had to take him to the hospital and then the pharmacy and trying to find the right medications for him. So yesterday was quite a, um, a day uh, for the Tate family and therefore for us. But I would love for you to be praying with us for Nathan and Anna Tate and their three kids. Uh, they're a wonderful family. Please pray with me uh, for them. So that means that I'm recording today in my office at the cafe, and maybe you can hear a bit of background music uh, because just on the other side of this wall, there is our Friday night open mic night happening. It's a bustling crowd out there. We've got a, uh, a huge table of um, uh, Iranians tonight and a, a group of uh, Arabic speakers who've been singing and right now there's a Nigerian friend uh, whose name is Victor. He's at the microphone right now. We've had some piano. We've had some um, Arabic traditional folk kind of music. We've had some pop music. There's of course every open mic night there's going to be some Adele. Uh, it's a great night uh, but also every Friday night we serve a special meal and this week I made a chicken biryani which is an Indian dish and so I dressed for biryani. I don't normally dress in Indian clothes for our Friday night open mic night but we did tonight because of the biryani. This in fact is an outfit that was given to me by David and Yashmita, an Indian couple who we discipled here uh, and uh, whose wedding I also had the pleasure of participating in. They're now um, married and, and they now actually are living in Mexico City where she is an astrophysicist doing research on black holes. Um, and so um, I'm dressed in Indian clothes. There's open mic night happening out there. You can't smell it, but the smell of chicken biryani is filling the cafe. The Tate family was just here for open mic night, brought the kids and they spent some time here. They've now gone back home, put the kids to bed. That's what's going on here at the cafe. It is just the the life that we live here. And um, uh, I wish you could be here to smell the smells and hear the sounds, uh, but you've got a bit of that uh, in the background. Now, in the meantime, we've been doing this series about encounters with Jesus. And I want to continue that series tonight 
with a very famous encounter that Jesus has with Lazarus. Of course, you know the basic contours of the story, probably. Uh, here's a spoiler alert. It's about a man, Lazarus, who dies and who Jesus raises to life again. Um, it's a powerful story, of course, and it's a meaningful story to me, and I want to tell that story to you today and bring out some of the nuances uh, that, uh, that have been encouraging to me and hopefully explain it in a way that will be encouraging to you as well. So if you want to join with me in John chapter 11, we'll begin in the first seven verses of the chapter. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to have some rotating various styles of, of, of background music. So if you get bored with me, just uh, tune into the music back there, and maybe that will be uh, more entertaining. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. There are some surprising elements even in this part of the story. Of course, we hear right away that Lazarus is sick. We hear that Mary and Martha send word to Jesus about Lazarus and his illness. And they were given this parenthetical note that this is the Mary who poured perfume on Jesus' feet. What's interesting about that detail is that John has not yet told us that story. In fact, it's in the next chapter. It's in chapter 12 that Jesus tells us the story, or that John tells us the story of uh, the perfume that Mary pours onto Jesus' feet and wipes with her hair. But John apparently is confident that everybody already knows that story, so he's able to refer to Mary that way, you know, the one who poured the perfume on Jesus' feet, even though he hasn't gotten to that part in his telling of the story. So it's an interesting detail that he includes in that place in verse 2. But Jesus assures his disciples around him when word comes. He assures them that this sickness will not end in death, that it is for God's glory. Now, Jesus had said something like this in John chapter 9, in verse 3, about a man who had been born blind, and Jesus says that he was born blind so that God's power can be displayed in his life. This is a similar statement, and it's a theme in John that God can use even death. He can turn around tragedy, even death, for his glory. That's, of course, already in this story a foreshadowing of the meaning that Jesus' death will take. But we're also told here that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
so that when he heard Lazarus was sick, was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. This part is surprising. Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick, and because he loves Lazarus and his sisters so much, he waits two more days to go to him. That's counterintuitive. You found out that your close friend is sick, so instead of going to him right away, because you love him so much, you wait two more days. What's going on here? Well, it's that previous verse that explains what's going on here. That Jesus loves Lazarus so much, he is going to use this situation as an opportunity to show even greater compassion, to give God even greater glory through the situation by allowing Lazarus to die so that he can raise Lazarus back to life. It's a powerful detail, and it reveals something about God's strategy in the world that God turns tragedy around, he's able to use even greater tragedy for greater glory. God can use even death to bring about new life. And it is out of his compassion, it is out of his love for Lazarus that he allows for Lazarus to die so that this greater miracle can take place in Lazarus's life. And Lazarus will now have the privilege of foreshadowing the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Now, this was also a shocking statement from Jesus because at the end of chapter 8 in, cha in the book of John, and at the end of chapter 10, just before these events, Jesus has narrowly escaped death at the hands of his opponents in Judea. The people of Judea have become enemies of Jesus, and his disciples recognize that going back to Judea, to the very place where he was stoned, where he was almost stoned, is dangerous. So, verse 8, But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. It is a powerful statement here, and it has become really meaningful to me. On the one hand, it's very similar to something that Jesus said in John 9, 4, right after the statement about using the blind man's um, sickness for God's glory. Let's read John chapter 9, verse 4. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's one of the I am statements of John, these declarations in which Jesus says something significant about his identity. Here, I am the light of the world. But he says, while it is daylight, we must do the works of him 
who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. But now it is day, and so we do what is right. We do the work of God now while we have the opportunity to do that, even when there is risk. And that's the message here in chapter 11. Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. Jesus says yes. He acknowledges that there is a risk. In fact, even the risk of death. He is not saying in this verse, don't worry, I know nothing will happen to me. He's saying, it's daytime. Now is the opportunity to do what is right, to confront even the risk of death, to do what is right. There are 12 hours of daylight, and there is coming a time when it'll be too late to do what is right. In the meantime, we walk by the trust in God, by the light that he gives us, and we face whatever consequences will come as a result of doing what is right. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, but they have no light. He's saying here, by avoiding what is right, by instead living in fear or in deceit or the, the secrecy of not doing what one should do, that is a more dangerous path to walk. Doing what is right, that is the more secure path. Not because it is without danger. To put those two things together, to see those things reconciled in your own heart, is a deep kind of growing. To recognize that while there is daylight, I have the opportunity to do what is right, even at great cost or even to confront great risk, and that that is the more secure path. That is a deep kind of growing. Most recently here at the cafe, there's been an ongoing investigation into our food bank. It started over the summer while I was back in the US and um, the police interrogated a couple of our church members who had been involved in the working of the food bank and there were threats about uh, legal action because of the food bank. And so we paused the work of the food bank for a few weeks until I got back to the country. We made some legal inquiries and uh, we made some adjustments to the, um, to the legal, uh, there's a legal association of which we are a part. We made some adjustments to that to provide a bit more legal uh, protection. But uh, in the end, there is still quite a risk that the authorities will uh, interrupt us in the working of the food bank, which is trying to distribute food to people in need in our community. But having taken some common sense precautions and having met with the team and talked about the risks involved in it, we decided together that we would continue to operate the food bank. So two weeks ago, we started again um, distributing food packages. And this past Monday was the second Monday uh, since I had been back that we have been again working the food bank. <clears throat> we recognize that um, we, we put ourselves at risk in doing that. Um, that we, we could just stop doing it. And I think not doing it would be an example here of walking 
at night, walking in darkness and avoiding doing the works of him who sent us while it is day. And so the food bank continues. And I, I have found in my life that that is the more secure path. I can ask you to pray with us for that as well. In verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. There's another theme of John that's, um, that includes these statements of Jesus, which are famously misunderstood by his conversation partner. And it gives Jesus an opportunity to give a deeper lesson. So here, Jesus says, Lazarus, has fallen asleep, and we're going to go wake him up. But his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Let the poor guy sleep if he's sick. They have not understood the gravity of the situation as Jesus has understood it. His disciples think that he's just sleeping. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So they set off to go wake a dead Lazarus. And here at the end of this section, we are introduced to Thomas. And I love this verse that we're about to read because... Thomas has come to be known as the disciple who doubted after the resurrection. I won't believe until I can put my hands in his, in his side. But Thomas is not known for his doubting or for his weakness of faith. He is a man who believes. And in fact, we see that here in verse 16. Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. The disciples are convinced that going to Judea risks dying. And the disciples, or at least Thomas, is willing to do that. They will be with Jesus. Thomas will walk with Jesus in the light, even if it means dying. On his arrival in verse 17, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus and the disciples set out to the place where Lazarus lived. Now Jesus at first seems to avoid the house where the crowd of mourners is gathered. Instead, he stays outside a bit. He sends word to Mary and Martha who find out that he's there and um, Martha comes out to meet him. And Martha at first, she is discouraged. She seems to know that Jesus has waited. But Jesus, if you hadn't waited, he wouldn't have died. And yet she still believes that Jesus 
can do something about it. Jesus said to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Can you imagine hearing that from Jesus? Both shock and awe and perhaps a little bit of doubt, but all of the hopefulness in those words. Your brother will rise again. Martha, maybe afraid to believe what Jesus could mean, says to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. A statement of what Jesus had been teaching previously, that there is, in fact, a resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. How beautiful that is. Another I am statement here. In the previous chapter, Jesus says, or it's in chapter 9, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Here in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. At least in the U.S., there's a tradition of carving this verse on the entrance to cemeteries. And I love that. In fact, I don't think it's morbid to love cemeteries. I love cemeteries. Not because I love death, but because I love the thought of resurrection. And death is just a part of the world as it is and the life that we now live, which is necessarily temporary in this mode of existence. But there is coming a resurrection. Lazarus's death and soon his being raised from the dead will be a foreshadowing of Jesus's death and resurrection. It's the occasion for Jesus to declare, I am the resurrection and the life. So walking through the stone archway of a cemetery in my home state of Connecticut that says, I am the resurrection and the life, a statement from this story of Lazarus. It is meaningful to me. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And that, that paradox that Jesus is using this event to demonstrate, to teach, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Of course, Jesus is talking about a kind of living that we acquire when we place faith in Jesus. A living that does not end, not because these bodies won't die, but because they will be raised. And the kind of living we acquire in Jesus is the kind of living that lasts forever. That eternal kind of living starts now, doesn't just start when we die. That eternal kind of living is a kind of living that begins when we place faith in Jesus, and we have now a connection to God, a coming alive in Jesus that, that will, in fact, last forever. That's the way that Jesus describes eternal life in John 17, 3, that this is eternal life that we know Jesus and we know the Father who sent Jesus. That is our eternal kind of living, a kind of living that will never end. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. 
After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. John gives us this profound declaration of faith. Even more explicit than the disciples have been able to declare up to now. And it's in the mouth of Martha. A woman. A woman whose brother has just died. And she declares a profound truth about the nature of Jesus. About the nature of the kind of life we have with him. She calls her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus, there, some, somewhere outside the crowd a bit, Mary goes off after him, and Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. They don't want to leave Mary to mourn alone. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's the same thing that Martha had just said. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. A funeral in the Middle East is often marked by profound, dramatic weeping. I was at a funeral recently, a tragic funeral, a teenage boy who died in a car accident. The wailing, the weeping. And then when his mother came in, just dramatic, wailing. That is, it's not really part of the culture that I grew up in, and I, I think not part of Canadian culture, but it's a, it's a way of externalizing the kind of grief. It's a, a kind of wailing, a kind of weeping that's unique to Middle Eastern cultures. Jesus sees the crowd weeping that way. He sees Mary weeping that way. He was deeply moved in spirit. And troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. And it seems like he is ready to get down to business. He has been already motivated. He's moved. He's, he's come for this reason. And seeing the grief of Mary and the crowd, show me where you put him, Jesus says. Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Jesus joins in the mourning of Mary and Martha and the crowd gathered there heading toward the tomb. As a Middle Eastern person does, he, he, he weeps with them. He cries with them. This word is about the shedding of tears in Greek. Jesus weeps. He participates in their mourning. Jesus suffers with us. This is another profound truth of the incarnation. The meaning of Jesus' life and his death. He does not just look from afar at our suffering. Jesus enters into our suffering. In fact, he suffers with us. 
Jesus acknowledges our suffering. Jesus makes noble all of our suffering. He makes meaningful all of our suffering. He is weeping with us. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Couldn't he have done something? Verse 38. Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. <laughs> Again, a foreshadowing. We, we will see a tomb like this. Just a few chapters from now in John. Jesus' own tomb. Lazarus is a foreshadowing of that dying. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Martha is concerned. This is going to be unpleasant. This is going to be, this is going to be more sh shameful, embarrassing, gross. It's going to be hard to handle. Open the tomb. He's, he's been rotting in there for four days. But Lord, said Martha, by this time there's a bad odor. I, I love that, that, we're, that we're, we're brought into the detail of the story. That Martha is just confronting the reality of dying in this world. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is using this situation as a declaration of his own identity and authority of the power and goodness of God, a miracle to proclaim Jesus, the Messiah, the resurrection, and the life. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I imagine what tone of voice Jesus might have used. thinking about the impact of that sentence on the crowd, the anticipation building when he says it. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Again, very similar to the way that Jesus was wrapped in preparation for his burial. Bodies of the dead in first century Judaism were wrapped in a cloth, and then the cloth was often treated with a mixture of spices to slow the process of decay. Here in Cyprus and in Turkey, bodies also are buried just wrapped in a white cloth, not in a, not in a casket. They 
want to encourage the process of decomposition and decay so that the body can return to the earth. But here, Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. <laughs> and I just, I love that. Here comes Lazarus out of the tomb. He's still wrapped. He's, he's got grave clothes wrapped all around him. He, he walks out of the tomb. His face is covered in this cloth. And it's probably got this sticky spice mixture on it. And, and, and he's stuck in these wrappings. And the people, the crowd, watching Lazarus come out of the tomb. Can you imagine the, the shock and the impact of that? And the, not knowing what to do about it. There, there, there's, a, there's a dead man now alive, walking out of his own tomb, still wrapped as he was for burial. And Jesus tells them, guys, unwrap him. Let him go. And presumably that's what happens. We see Jesus in, interacting with, is celebrating a meal with Lazarus in the next passages. There is Lazarus, again, a companion of Jesus. Now, there is there's an impact to this story uh, in, in the next sections of, of John. Because of this miracle, the plot to kill Jesus intensifies. And a very specific plan to have him killed is formulated in, in the next passage. that Jesus will walk in the light. While there are 12 hours of daylight, he will do what is right. Even knowing that it will set off a chain of events that will lead to his death. But he's demonstrated in the raising of Lazarus that, uh, that death is just one more thing that God can turn around for his glory. There's another connection for me to the Lazarus story and it's it's that Lazarus's tomb is here in Cyprus there isn't any other competing burial tradition for Lazarus probably historical Lazarus's tomb is right here on the island uh, well there is actually a sort of minority claim in Palestine for a, a tomb but it's most probably this one here in Cyprus I've been there. It's a beautiful place. And it makes you reflect on Lazarus's life and on his healing, on his being raised, because there's a curious reality about Lazarus that he died twice. Lazarus died twice. That's a, a statement about the kind of world that we live in. The processes of, of dying, they are an inevitable part of the world as it is. They are inevitable, but temporary. And even those processes that involve dying, they are a tool in the hand of God who can turn around those tragedies for his glory and there is coming a day when we all will be raised by Jesus who is the resurrection and the life we will be raised in a final kind of 
way, a permanent way, a way that will not again result in dying. The world as it is, it is, it is made of temporary stuff. But something better is coming. In the meantime, looking forward to that ultimate resurrection, we walk in the daylight. While there are yet some hours of daylight, we will do the work of God who sent us. Even if that means facing real risk or danger, even the kind of danger that might lead to dying. We take the common sense precautions that we should take. Jesus waits outside the city, doesn't just charge into the crowd of mourners. We changed our documents for our association to provide some legal protection before we started again the work of the food bank. It's not a recklessness, but a determination to do what is right, even at great cost. I pray that that has been encouraging to you, even if it is challenging, uh, and that you will come to know and love and follow Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, that you will walk in the daylight, even if it means facing great risk, even the kind of risk that leads to dying, knowing that Jesus can turn even great tragedy around for his glory. There is something better coming.